Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. Ooh, I sound like I have radio voice. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, at CIA Spy Girl on Twitter. And we're broadcasting from a different coast, the East Coast, and I'm in D.C. And I'm super excited. Nay, thrilled to be joined by not one, but two of my favorite journalists and podcasters. They're the co-hosts of the Skullduggery. Uh, the first one is Disco Dan Clydeman. <laughs> And he asked that he be called Disco Dan. That was not me. And Michael Itzikoff. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. Are you super excited to join me? Um, we are super excited to be on a show for beautiful people. Well, you did. Because um, we don't me. usually get to meet beautiful people in our line of work. Well, yeah. you did ask when I was on your podcast. You said, I want to be on your podcast. So, Oh, God. You're like revealing everything. Am I not? See, I'm not a journalist. I'm not supposed to do that, am I? You are a spy. You should be, I, you should have learned discretion at the, at the company. At the company, the agency. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to give or a little. at the farm. At the farm. At the farm, right. Which I never really found out why it was, I mean, it's far It's in away. like farm country, isn't it? Isn't no. it out in Virginia? It's, I mean, you can look online. I'm not going to say where it is. Do they grow it's anything? I don't know, like corn or something? No. <laughs> He's wondering if they grow weed, actually. Yeah. Well, come to L.A. for that. It's everywhere. It's one big hot box right now in L.A. Yeah. It's a little bizarre. Um, I want to give a little of your background so everybody can know how impressive it is that you're here. Dan, you're a reporter. And tell me if I got it wrong, because I'll just do a little backstory. When I was on the Skullduggery, which was so much fun. No one's ever called it the Skullduggery, but I kind of <laughs> like that. Do you know why I call it that? Because in L.A., we put the in front of everything. I don't know if you've noticed this when you're there. Every highway, it's not like here. You're like, on oh, the yeah, 60. the 101 or it's whatever. The 101, yeah. the 405. Yeah, yeah. You put the in front of everything. Yeah. So why didn't we think of this? You can take right. it. Yeah. Do you want it? We'll run with it. We'll, we'll go with it. Yeah. I just want duggery. and I want ten percent because I'm from LA and that's what you do with an agent. <laughs> Dan, I had you were a reporter and editor um, at Newsweek, and at now you're at Yahoo News. You're the editor in chief. Yes, I am. Do you rule with an iron fist? <gasps> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good thing you said that because yeah. you would have been in trouble if you hadn't. Right. Um, I actually heard a very nice compliment from an old colleague of yours that said, he said, he's a hell of an editor. And he Jeez. said, you were fantastic. Well, are you going to reveal I who will, that is? I don't know if I should, I'll reveal after the show. All right. I will Fair absolutely, enough. you obviously, you know I'm blushing. If, if, if you could see us, you could see me blushing right now. And you also wrote a book. Uh, you're the author of Kill or Capture, The War on Terror and the Soul of the Obama Presidency. That's right. That's a good title. It's a mouthful. Well, Killer Capture is, is great. pretty good. The rest yeah. of it, I don't, I don't know. But uh, did you? Get it to- was about Obama uh, and drones, basically. Did you get to choose your title? Uh, you know, my editor actually came up with that title, um, and uh, I thought it was great, so I went with it. That sounds good. Nice. Yeah, you know what, um, authors? Did you come up with? The titles of like hubris was that your normally no. authors do not come up with 
the titles of their books because they're too close to it and they don't necessarily have the kind of commercial instinct that you need for a title. It's so splashy. And- yeah. Kill, uh, you know, my uh, an old editor uh, at Newsweek used to say that if you could put, you know, either like Kill or Massacre on the cover of the magazine, that was always a good thing. So Massacre was like the best word. That's yeah. a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a writer, and then when I get to your talk to you, Take Michael, your time. I, I have a I have a question because I have a theory that everyone has like a few words that they love, and they're like they're special words that when they hear it, they're like, oh, those are good meaty words. Like I love the word apoplectic. It's a good word. It feels. good. It is. Yeah. It's it's kind of onomatopoetic. I was just about to say. Whoa. Which is, uh, which is by the way, that's the word I was going to use. Pretty. It's the word I like. Onomatopoeia, but the, uh, is that a noun? The adjective is onomatopoetic? I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's a, go with that. I was a theater but, major. I don't know these things. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Cocksucker. <laughs> well, that is a, well, you know what? Yeah. Too rich for my blood. I fold. <laughs> Screw apoplectic. Yeah. Good it's Lord. It's kind of a good cop, bad cop routine <laughs> yeah. here. I come up with onomatopoetic. He comes up with cocksucker. cocksucker. Yeah. Do you know I actually have that down in here? Someone what, gets you. Cocksucker? Yeah, I do. Well, that's the first 30 show minutes. Me like... I actually had good uh, I, good I cop, think I know cop. why. Because yeah. a, yes. So you had a reporter who worked for me. He called me a great editor. And then you've got some guy, someone or who worked uh, with Issachar. <laughs> Yeah, you call him a cocksucker. cocksucker right? You were saying yeah. just one person? <laughs> Please. Uh, but I had a down here that I think what's interesting about your dynamic is there really is sort of a good cop, bad cop between you two. Was that automatic or did that just kind of come organically when you started hosting this together? You know, I, it's actually a good question because I've Thank always you. thought about actually. <laughs> actually. Whenever anything is preceded by Surprise. actually, it's yeah. an insult. No. It's the worst word ever. Yeah. <laughs> I had a relative used to do that. Actually, I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> but I, it, it, what it made me think is that, uh, it, it, you know, r- reporters come in all different kinds of uh, flavors and varieties. And they ply their trade um, in very different ways. Um, and, you know, most reporters, you know, will use, you know, kind of different uh, tactics and, and uh, but Mike is much more hard charging than I am. No. Um, he's a little more in, in your face. Um, I like to think of myself as a little more seductive as a, as a reporter. No, I'm sort of like, you know, I try to charm. I try to get people to trust me. I try to, you know, be their friend. And um, so it, we I think we we approach reporting um with kind of different styles, um, and maybe that's reflected in the way we uh, uh, we actually are as people. You know, was it hard when you start when you to do a podcast together? Because I think of journalism as a very solo job in a way. I mean, you obviously work with a team, but you have an editor. But I I think working together, where you're both trying to get to a story or get what the best nuggets out of a source. Well, so we worked very closely together for a long time at Newsweek. And, okay. and that is Newsweek, uh, the, 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 the news magazines um, were kind of the last kind of great practitioners of group journalism where you might have, you know, 10 people on a, on a story working together. And we worked together on, you know, like a, most stories. Uh, we had a kind of small team. We should have had Hosenball on this I podcast, know. too. Uh, so you're our missing Mark Hosenball was, was the, uh, the colleague. Third, that is a great name, too. Third part of the trio. We should uh. tell some Hosenball stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sounds like a frat brother. But, you know, uh, Hosenball and, should be 
a a definite primo guest on Washington for Beautiful People. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, and so we complemented each other with the different kinds of styles of reporting, which I talked about. Uh, uh, we I think we had sources that overlap, but we also had our own sources. And so, you know, the idea was to be kind of, well, this is a military term. They might use this in the CIA as well, force multipliers. Um, no? Well, no, so you you, <laughs> you work together and you can bring more. To, what is it? You're, you're the more than the sum of your parts? Yeah. That kind of idea. And so since we've worked together for a long time, um, I think it was a pretty natural transition to the, to the podcast. Because you guys have a very organic chemistry to both of you. Well, we love each other. I can tell. <laughs> it's beautiful. Do you guys want to hold hands? <laughs> I can sing a little. I'll give you a moment. Did you... Did they approach you about doing a podcast or is this... I will tell you how this happened. Because I'm curious Uh, if it was just the necessity at the time. So this is what happened. Um, We were developing a new uh, app for Yahoo News. Um, And there was a... a, My boss, um, uh, Alex Wallace, wanted more video content in the, uh, in the, in the app. And so she had asked me to come up with some ideas, uh, for video shows, uh, you know, like some sort of, poli- like a political show. And the first idea was maybe we should do a kind of, you know, sort of Sunday show, um, but do it on Friday or whatever. And so we were in a group, we were talking about it and, and, um, and I said, well, you know, those shows are pretty outdated, um, and people don't really aren't that into them anymore and we're trying to get new audiences so what do people like now well people like podcasts so why don't we do a video podcast was the original idea so it would it would be video but it would have all the values of a podcast which is to say uh you know uh more a little more informal um personality driven but uh substantive and and i suggested i said well why don't you know isakoff and i do a show, a video show together, um, and we, you know, be focused on the Russia scandal and all kind of all sort of Trump scandals and controversies. Keep and so, and so that's what we did, and we launched this podcast as a video podcast. And the very first episode we did was uh, with Eric Holder, oh. who was uh, the former Attorney General, uh, who both of us had covered, and it was the 20th anniversary of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which Mo- which Mike broke, but which we worked on together. Um, and it didn't really work well. It was a good show, but it didn't really work as a video. Why? Because it was too. You know, we we sort of um, I remember we were sitting on stools and we had te- had a teleprompter. It was stilted. Yeah. And it wasn't really podcasty. It wasn't informal. It was a little. We were too, and and everyone kind of realized it. Um, and so we just said, let's let's kill the video and let's do, do it as a as a podcast. And then it kind of took off. And and now we do it as video again because once we kind of got in a rhythm and uh, got more comfortable uh, with the medium, it was easy then to kind of bring cameras in in a more unobtrusive way. Um, and we realized that actually video is very useful for um, promoting the, the podcast, for Twitter, for social, um, that sort of thing. But that's I, how it happened. I think it's really smart. And also it is, it's a very different medium when you start filming it. I think you become right. very, very, very conscious of exactly. everything you do. Yeah, Isakoff would go into you know his NBC you know, uh, broadcasting <laughs> voice. And you know, I was always fixing it's my hair. Professional. You know, yes. <laughs> um, 
But, um, you know, we actually, uh, you know, I think our biggest breakthrough was when we had George Conway, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, on as our guest. Um, And we didn't tell him there was video, even though there was a camera right in front of him when he arrived. By the way, it's the only interview he's ever done. It was such a... It's the only interview he's ever done. I actually have that under Big Gets. That was the title, because I was so impressed that you were the only people who could have But the point is, because we had that camera which for some reason he didn't seem to notice, um, it was like playing on CNN all day right, long. Right, right. That's the other thing. Yeah, is if, yeah. you, if we have a God. scoop and we have like a newsmaker who yeah. says something, then for, for like cable news, for, for and, and, you know, it, it's really valuable because they yeah. want to show the You have to be images. able to show it. It's, yeah. it's, it, makes it, it makes it much more viral. To and do also it, actually. For, for Twitter, you, you post a little you know, video clip and people watch it. How did George, did you just call him and say, hey, do you want to do this? You haven't done any? Like, how does that there's happen? A good backstory there's a good backstory to this. A, there's a 20-year yeah, backstory. 20-year backstory. <laughs> he was, I mean, I've known him for, you know, since back in those days. He was a key player behind the scenes in the events that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. Uh, and um, he was one of the um, elves, which is what I called them in the book I wrote about all this, this sort of you know, little network of conservative lawyers who were drafting the briefs uh, in the Paula Jones case and first learned and learned about Linda Tripps and her what she was hearing from Monica Lewinsky. So um, we, you know, and he was a key source back then, and... Much of it was known I, when I wrote Uncovering Clinton. He's mentioned many times. But there were a few things which he had always not been public about. And um, one of which was um, he was the source that tipped me off to the FBI's sting of Monica Lewinsky. And in our podcast, 20 years after the fact, he revealed himself as the deep throat who uh, tipped Newsweek off to um, the FBI's uh, sting under Ken Starr's direction to get Monica Lewinsky. Was it exciting for you to be able to share these details now after so long after He's the fact? A, I mean, it, it was... Um, uh, it's actually quite a, uh, lively discussion. He's a very funny guy. He's very, very very funny. funny. Right. And, um, and very smart. You know, he's a accomplished corporate litigator. Uh, and, um, yeah. Um, let me, can I tell the story about, uh, the first time I met him, which was in the middle of this. Uh, I came, I think I was, uh, so Newsweek, uh, this is in the Washington Bureau of Newsweek, just down the street from where we are now, um, and our deadlines were usually Friday nights uh, into Saturday. We closed the magazine late Saturday, but this was a Friday evening, and we were sitting on the Monica Lewinsky story, um, and still kind of, uh, I think at that point, we our expectation was that we were going to run it. Um, and and it would Certainly be out that I thought was gonna it would happen. be out that right. that Monday yeah. um, really really Sunday it's really Sunday is when the magazine uh, came out um, and I came back um, from uh, wherever I was and I'm walking down the hall toward McDaniel's office that was Ann McDaniel who was the bureau chief and right across the hall um, 
there's a guy, kind of a short, somewhat portly guy, and a very, very tall guy, um, Lurch, who we called later called Lurch, <laughs> yeah. um, and you introduced me to him. And as I recall it, he had a like a brown envelope in his hands, yeah. um, and uh, and he was uh, giving it to you. Um, well, that envelope had um, some cassette tapes in it, right? Yeah. It was the tapes. Those were the those were the Linda, Linda Tripp Monica Lewinsky yeah. conversations. You had the actual tapes. So yeah. yeah so yeah. so we um, you know he left eventually, and uh, we you know in Ann McDaniel's office uh, we listened to those tapes, those conversations between Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky, where Linda Tripp is asking her all these questions about her affair with. Bill Clinton and not telling her that she was, you know, Wang. taping her. Yeah. And had you had not this is one of the details about his reporting that I always found fascinating, which is was it Lucianne Goldberg, someone who had offered uh to for you to listen to those tapes. Well, that before. was a couple months earlier. Be- before. Yeah, in October. Um, and he decli- Mike declined to listen to them. Why did you he didn't want to be drawn in? Because at that point, um, they were in the process of taping, and it was clear they were looking for my advice on what to say to Monica Lewinsky to get her to say things for uh, that would make a story in Newsweek. And that kind of made me a little queasy. And I did not want to be involved in the process. But at the point, a couple months later, at that point, we knew that the FBI and under Ken Starr's direction had launched this investigation. So there's no that question was it was based on the tapes, on the content of the tapes. So at that point, to understand what it was that, Mon- I, you know, it was it was a no-brainer. Of course, I wanted to hear the tapes at that point to evaluate what was the basis for this investigation Did but you? at the same time we're sitting there listening to what is you know clearly an effort by linda tripp to you know manipulate entrap uh monica Lewinsky, and that we were going to be the vehicle uh for for that um and you know it was it was very weird and then um you know what i remember i don't think we left the office till about 3 30 3 34 in the morning and i'm driving home you know back then you could drive past the white house and driving past the capitol and it's you know it's very quiet in washington um and you just sitting there knowing you know it's just a matter of hours or days before this city just explodes it's gonna explode it's like you're describing the you know that would be the movie movie. scene that was the movie scene well was it to listen to linda tripp did you feel to, as you're describing it, and as I've read about him before, I feel such empathy for Monica. Right. Knowing that this woman is doing it. Did it sound as manipulative and as evil as what I'm anticip- <laughs> what I'm hearing? I just, it's, to me, it's pure well, evil. Well, look, I mean, you know, when you're secretly taping a friend, obviously there's a fundamental it's betrayal so there. Um, you know, from uh, Linda Tripp's perspective and Lucianne Goldberg's perspective, um, nobody was going to believe Linda Tripp if she simply said, Monica Lewinsky has told me about this longstanding affair she's been having with the President of the United States. So having it, having Monica say it on tape was, um, uh, you know, was deemed to be a significant um, uh, element of proof. I should tell you, I, I, I've had a, you know, I never, 
um, had an opportunity to talk to Monica um, during that time at all. By the time we were ready to write the story, she knew something big was coming down. She knew she'd been subpoenaed in the um, Paula Jones in the Paula Jones case. Uh, you know, I don't think she was aware when I first placed my call to her that the FBI was already on to her. Um, She's what twenty three at this point. She was twenty four. I think when the, the affair, affair started, began, she was twenty two yeah. or twenty two. Twenty two, yeah. right? And um, anyway, um, so. About a year ago, so we never had any contact. Um, about a year ago, um, I happened, I saw she was on Twitter. She's great on Twitter, by the way. Yeah, and I followed her on Twitter. And she sends me a DM saying, um, I don't want to take the aggressive step of blocking you, but can you unfollow me on Twitter? I really don't want to have any connection to you. You, you know, I was young and... Yeah. You know, you were reporting this story, and I said, I'm sorry I, you feel that way, um, but, you know, um, we actually exchanged a couple of DMs, but I unfollowed her. But then, after the Clinton Affair documentary just, ran, was it, on A&E? Saw, it was A&E, yeah. yeah, it's been nominated for an Emmy, I thought it was really good, uh, she is terrific she's in that fantastic she's terrific in that um and i was in it as well and she like reached out to me and said i'm sorry you uh, i'm sorry i was so rude <laughs> you know a year ago uh but i appreciate your honesty i guess in what i had said on the documentary so um i can't imagine the what she went through is yeah. un believable it's i'm i was trying to think is it worse that what she went through then or if there was social media then now right. and how she dealt with it did you see her on john oliver i did not i've heard that she was very good she was fantastic and yeah. it was it's definitely i definitely worth you all watching it was she mm. was truly truly wonderful and i think it gave such a unique perspective to really what she endured in it yeah but, what was the deal with the blue dress? I kept reading something. Well, like, the story on the blue dress yeah. is like in November of 97, I'm sitting at my desk in Newsweek and um, Linda Tripp calls me up and tells me that she was at Monica's the night before and Monica showed her the blue dress with the, the stain, the, with the stain, the faithful stain. And she asked me, um, do you think I should take it? And I said, and what do you mean? And do what with it? And she said, and give it to you. And I said, and what would I do with it? And she said, you could have it tested. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, um, aside from the fact that I did not want to be uh, an accessory to theft of <laughs> dress and take custody of stolen property, um, how was I going to test uh, the, <laughs> the stain on the dress? I did not, I gently pointed out, have access to Bill Clinton's DNA and I would be unable to um, approve anything. And I told her I thought she was, you know, a little bit um, off on this and forgot about it. Um, and little did I know that that was the fateful evidence that ultimately led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. I've often, didn't, often didn't thought, she also persuade 
Monica and like not to send the dress to the dry cleaner. Just yeah, to yeah keep they it. did I have mean, a discussion did. about yeah. that. But I've often thought as a sort of counter, you know, history, if I had took her up on it, and didn't have out. the dress. Well, I might have thrown it out. I might have just had it in the office, and probably wouldn't have had trouble. Would have had trouble finding it, given what our <laughs> yeah. office looked like. Wait a minute, but no. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say, if you have a stained blue dress, it'd probably stand out. Well, I, you haven't seen my yeah. office but. under about like 25 years of SEC documents, <laughs> and, you know, right. But, you know, if that had happened, you know, and then um, uh, they wanted the dress, they would have had to come to Newsweek. Newsweek, of course, would not have turned over oh, of course. The, uh, this to stars. So I could have actually saved Bill Clinton from impeachment had I <laughs> taken the dress or had Monica. changed history. Had, uh, yes, history could have been changed. Well, I'm going to admit something that I've never admitted to anybody it has yes. everything to do with this. Yeah. When I was at the agency... I'm actually horrified that I started this sentence, but now I'm going to finish it. <laughs> yeah, to finish I'm, it. Yeah. If I'm turning red, it's because it's really, yeah. truly horrible, and I should have yeah. thought about it. Could edit it later. So at the CIA, they do a costume parade um, at, during Halloween. Truly, people dress up, and it's like a lot of dorky costumes, a lot of Star Trekkers and stuff. And people, sometimes, there's sometimes contests, like who has the best contest? And I thought it would be hilarious, and it wasn't. But I thought it would be hilarious if I went as Monica Lewinsky. In a blue dress? In a blue dress and a beret. <laughs> And I stained my blue dress. No! And, is, is and there... I, I just did it. I mean, I didn't stain it like that, but I literally stained it. And I was like, I think about how young and naive that I was like, I'm going to go as Monica Lewinsky, the CIA, in a blue dress that's stained and a beret, and it's going to be awesome. So I do this. There's a guy who works in another department, because um, I was in the disguise department, and he goes, I'm going to go as Bill Clinton. And he made himself a prosthetic nose so he would look like bill clinton he walked around with me with a cigar i got in so much fucking trouble do we have pictures there's no pictures <laughs> there are are you sure there's no pictures come on the cia aren't there pictures I, yeah. of everything isn't that could've, the whole point someone could satellite photos satellite photos I hope to God there's no. So problems. what do you mean you got in trouble? Were you, My what, boss called me and she said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "What do you think I'm doing? I have the best costume." She goes, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm Monica Lewinsky." She goes, "You need to take that off right now." And she was horrible. <laughs> she was a very intimidating woman. And was this Gina Haspel? It was not Gina. It was okay. not Gina. But right. she was already not a fan of Emily. <laughs> she was in the not Emily fan club at Ooh, all. So the agency was divided. She, yeah, <laughs> pro, pro and anti-Emily. Anti Emily. Wow. She was in the anti-Emily. She would have had like the t-shirt that said like, just say no to Emily. It's kind of like uh, James Jesus Angleton. He was very divisive figure in the yeah. CIA uh -huh. too. There were, you know, defenders right. of him and foes of him. And you're kind of, you know, in the like next I'm generation. Like, right. I feel like I'm a little blushy right now. I cannot believe I did. In yeah. hindsight, I think how naive was I to think this is going to be the, con this is going to be the costume. Yeah. This is going to be it. So, yes, I did that. Right. Anyway, moving on. Moving Cause, on. Because this is not... You've had other really amazing guests that I've also made some news. Like, you had AOC. You had... Will you tell a little bit about the about Rashida Tlaib and what happened? Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because I was reading all about it, and I... Does that she, was weird. Does she speak yeah. to you anymore? Well, no. I mean, she. we haven't tried, I'd, but okay. I don't think she would. So what happened with Rashida Tlaib was... Uh, you know, we were interested in... Uh, in talking to some of these kind of young firebrand um, Democrats who've taken Washington by storm. And as you mentioned, we'd interviewed um, AOC, and it was a pretty newsy interview. And uh, uh, so we reached out to Rashida Tlaib and, and um, didn't know whether she would go for it, but she did. 
um, and did this interview in her office. Um, initially, I think we wanted to focus on on impeachment because, um, as your first thing we're going to do is impeach the motherfucker. And that was like the day that she was sworn in before she was sworn in. So that got a lot of attention. And I think she did, uh, actually, um, did she introduce impeachment, uh, a a resolution, a resolution. Um, Mm -hmm. and AOC, uh, on our interview had told us that she was, had decided to sign up, uh, on for that resolution. So that was what most of the interview was about. Uh, but we also knew that she had some controversial uh, foreign policy uh, views. Now, she's the first uh, Palestinian-American um, woman. Ele- woman elected yeah. to, to Congress. Because I think Justin, Justin yeah, Amash, Amash is, is Justin Palestinian Amash as well. Is, yeah. pa- is, right. And right now he's a little bit of a hero. <laughs> yes, some. to some people. To right? some people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and and the, the one thing in particular that... Uh, uh, her, uh, that she had uh, one view in particular that she had kind of embraced, which was controversial, uh, w- was a one-state solution um, in in Israel for Israelis and, and Palestinians. And there are some on the far right in Israel who uh, uh, have embraced that view, which is to say, to ex- ex- yeah, that one-state solution would be expelling all of the Palestinians. In her vision, it was that Palestinians and and Jews, Israelis and Arabs, uh, would live together. So I wanted to ask her about that, um, and um, she sort of, right off the bat, I think she went into that uh, unusual answer where uh, she sort of stopped, thought for a second, and then said, uh, you know, we've just, and actually she used the word celebrated, we just celebrated, and then she stopped herself and said, uh, we've just... um, what was it, recognized or uh, took a moment to recognize uh, the anniversary of the, of the Holocaust. Um, and when I think about the Holocaust, I get this, uh, uh, this warm, this calming, calming feeling, calming feeling comes, comes over me. I will tell you, I do not get that calming feeling. Yeah. And I would never use the word celebrate. Right. right. And so, and, and then she went on to explain, um, and it was it was awkward and and inelegant and and the basic point that she was making was that that she felt some pride that through the suffering and injustices that her people the Palestinian people had experienced um, that uh, created uh, helped create a safe haven for Jews who had been uh, terribly persecuted and suffered through the Holocaust. It was a weird juxtaposition um, and. It was right after that question that she started to get quite emotional, um, almost teary, almost teary yeah. in the interview. And frankly, we didn't really know what was going on. I think we were a little perplexed by it. But then her press secretary stands up and starts waving her hands and saying, OK, this interview is over. I was going to ask you if somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And we said, no, we got we got a couple more questions. Um, and she sat down and we asked a couple more questions, and um, and then at the end, she just kind of almost stormed out of the office. She barely said goodbye, wasn't going to say goodbye, and then kind of turned around in the most perfunctory of ways, kind of acknowledged that she was leaving. But I should point out, like that said, we didn't think that she had said anything especially newsworthy. We thought that she had sort of given a convoluted and not very coherent answer to a question, but she didn't, it did not... 
her point was not to um, somehow, you know, suggest that the, the Holocaust was okay or she approved no. it or anything. It, it, she was trying to make almost the opposite point, but she was so awkward in the language she used that she left herself open yeah. for Liz Cheney a day later after the podcast airs to take that little you know the calming feeling and then attack her for which she called it vile anti-semitism that went up on a sunday evening uh and all of a sudden it just it blew up um and you know in fact mike's you know we didn't even write a story about it because mike was like this is just too tangled how are we gonna what's the story and so it blew up and then the next morning Trump tweeted about it, um, and then it just was like every it was everywhere. It, it truly. I was going to ask you: Did her office contact you guys afterwards? Did anybody no. reach out? No, no contact since no. that interview. I no. also think it's just poor form. Now everybody's comparing everything to the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. can yeah. we not you, you do that just, anymore? You should yeah. basically pretty much not bring up the Holocaust <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that should just be something that everybody just knows because yeah. everyone's. It's just like the Holocaust. You know what's like the Holocaust? The Holocaust. That's just about it. All right. So what's your view of AOC talking about concentration camps at the border? Who's doing this interview, Michael? Um, (laughs) You know, I'm asking the question. Now I'm asking the questions. You know, it was. Yeah. I'm so troubled by what we're doing and that it's so disgusting and it's so awful that I was actually okay with that, with that comparison. To me, it was different than saying it's an extermination camp. I know it sounds like semantics or it's different from the, all the, right. the technical parts of it, but the technical parts of the Holocaust. But, uh, <laughs> it, so it, to me, it wasn't as, it wasn't as upsetting as mm-hmm. some of the other comparisons that we're saying. What do you both say? What do you, what did you think about that? You know, I think to the point that you made about Nothing. 30 seconds ago yeah. is, don't like, compare don't go me. there I know. don't bring up the holocaust and the problem is is that language around this subject is so fraught um yeah. that you just have to be exceedingly careful and you know i grew up my mother's a holocaust survivor i grew up talking about concentration camps the only meaning uh that you know in our family we when we talked about the concentration camps, it was uh, the Holocaust. Holocaust. Not necessarily, they weren't all, we knew that they weren't all death camps or extermination camps, but, and so, yes, you can make a, a, a historical argument, and there's research out there yeah. to make the case okay. that there are other kinds of internment camps and, you know, uh, you know uh, the Japanese uh, internment camps in this country that people refer to as concentration camps, but why open yourself up to uh, that kind of, uh, not, it's not just opening yourself up to that kind of criticism, but why uh, put yourself in a position where you may be offending a lot of people um, using that kind of language? I also worry that... I thought it was her, fr- she, when we interviewed her, by the way, yeah. I was extremely impressed. I thought she was uh, uh, no false steps, uh, very uh, deft, thoughtful um i thought this was a a, not a huge mistake certainly one that she comes back from but i i thought it was a little bit of a mistake she's doubled down on it too i know yeah i know it's what's hard is my challenge when people go all in on the holocaust i feel like it somehow diminishes what it is and what it was and i think that's a real problem right 
and it just that's where I it's also I it's just it's hard to hear other people talk about it it's what do you think Michael I uh, agree Oh, with both of you. That was the quickest. <laughs> I agree. Who on yeah. your list, because I know you go after guests, who are your top three that you would love to go after right now? Oh, who we have not interviewed. Yeah, you have had, that you're like, that you're like, oh, I want to get them. We came close on Trump. Did you really? Yeah. Well, I thought we did. Kellyanne had said he would talk to I still us. think he will. I think he will. But, I still think um, he will. I think he likes the challenge. I remember during the... New Hampshire uh, primary. We were up in New Hampshire we eat, uh, eating at a big state uh, steakhouse, the Manchester Chop House or whatever it was, and uh, just the two of us and a couple of other Yahoo News reporters and Trump and his whole entourage oh. and the, the the kids. They show up. Um, there are about twenty of them, yeah. and they walk past yeah, us, and horrible. he sees you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Right. Can you want to tell, tell the story? Yeah, you tell the story. Yeah. It's a, since it's about me. <laughs> so, so, yeah. This I'll is correct like you when night, you embellish it. For the New Hampshire primary. Now, I had interviewed Trump um, in 2011 um, when he was talking about running for president that time, right? Um, and this is you know, playing off the birther stuff. I was going to say he was a right. big old birther right, back then. Right, 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 right. And um, uh, I was at NBC then, and they, um, I was the investigative guy. Okay, what, he's going to run for president. Talking about running for president, dig into his business record, do his story about And I did. Um, uh, and put together uh, a whole piece. And then, of course, I went for, for an interview, uh, asked for an interview. I got... Uh, put through to a guy named Michael Cohen. Um, I've heard of him. Ra- yes, all right. And what's this all about? What, you know, I said, well, I'm doing a piece for NBC. I said, all right, well, uh, Mr. Trump will call you and we'll, uh, you know, he'll, he wants to know what this is all about. Um, you know, he said they're gonna, he's going to do it. And then the night before, Trump calls me up. I'm sitting at my desk, just himself. He said, um, uh, and he starts screaming at me. Said, I've checked you out. You're doing a hatchet job. I know what the fuck you're up to. I'm not going to grant you an interview, you know, unless your boss calls me up and says, this is going to be fair. And he's like screaming and I'm holding it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, this piece is running, blah, blah, blah. Were you I, rolling your eyes as you were I saying mean, that? I'm I so like, sorry you feel that way. I had never talked to the guy before. And he's just screaming. And, um, I went to the executive producer of Nightly News and said, I'm not calling Donald Trump. Just go there. Just go to Trump Tower, which we did. And, of course, he comes down, you know, just on, just as it was always planned, uh, sits for the interview. It was quite contentious. Um, and I was hammering him about all his bankruptcies and, you know, how, how could you call yourself a successful businessman when you keep uh, going belly up and uh, into bankruptcy court? Um, it runs, it, it leads uh, the nightly news that night. He goes on CNBC a couple of days later, calls me the worst reporter in America. Oh my God, you that's know, amazing. I know, I was getting high fives all around uh, the <laughs> That should be your room. Twitter profile. I know, I know. <laughs> Good uh, God, man. So, you know, cut to, that's 2011, 2016. Five years later, we're there at this steakhouse, night before the New Hampshire primaries, coming around. And um, uh, shaking hands, and I said, ah, "Mr. Trump, I don't know if you remember me, Mike Isgoff. I interviewed you with." I'm the worst reporter ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he said, "Oh, 
oh yeah, oh yeah, you killed me in that interview. You killed me in that interview. And then he, t- oh, he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, as a, it was a terrible story. It was a nasty interview. It was, it was terrible. And and he's walking away, and then he, he turns just turns you. around and he kind of looks at me and smiles. He says, "It's actually pretty good." <laughs> actually, what he said was, you know. He was right. Yeah. <laughs> you could get him. He was right. Yeah. That's what it was. He, he was, was right. right. He well, was you right. You could totally get him yeah. for an interview. Yeah. 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 Well, you know. Well. Thank you all so much for joining us. And if you liked this podcast, you can go to deepstateradionetwork.com and you could download it. And you can support all of our work be- be- by becoming a member. And members receive early access to all the podcasts and one-on-one newsmaker interviews and discounts on swag. But you can also download us at iTunes every Friday and it's free. And if you like it, leave a review, leave a rating, let me know what you think. I would love to hear from you. And you can also follow our guests. You have Michael Itzikoff and he's at Itzikoff and Dan Clydman and he's at D Clydman. And also follow their podcast, which is amazing, at Skullduggery. And, of course, you can follow me at CIA Spy Girl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.